Hello, everybody. Welcome to a very special episode of the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. I am your host, Hank Shaw, and quick shout out to Hunt to Eat and Filson for sponsoring the show. This one is going to be really, really cool. We have the opportunity to talk with Rocky Gutierrez, and Rocky Gutierrez is arguably the game bird guru. He has been a hunter and a game bird biologist for almost as long as I've been alive, and I'm not young. He has published almost 200 peer-reviewed papers on everything from grouse to bantail pigeons to mountain quail to spotted owls, and he is an absolute well of information on all things upland. So enough of me, let's talk to Rocky. Rocky Gutierrez, welcome to the show. I can't tell you how excited I am to have you on because you may well be the the Yoda of game bird biologists. Um, I got a chance to look at your your CV, and it's funny because most of us here in the real world have a have a resume, you know, and it's a page or two page. But as a not only an academic but a academic of pretty amazingly prodigious pedigree, your CV is like 31 pages long, and you've published 175 peer-reviewed papers and on all kinds of different subjects and and I just have to say I'm pretty impressed to to be able to talk with you today. Well, uh, thank you very much, uh, Hank. I think my uh, graduate students would probably agree with you that I actually look like Yoda too. <laughs> mm, game birds i will teach you <laughs> so ostensibly i brought you on the show to talk about mountain quail because you are as far as i know the one of the if not the experts on this particular species and i do want to talk about that bird extensively but you have so much experience with so many of the other birds that we work with in this in the season of hunt gather talk that I think we may end up being a little bit more wide ranging because you have studied bantail pigeons, you have studied valley quail, you have studied lots of different kinds of grouse. So all of these are species that everybody listening to this is interested in. So we may go a little bit farther afield, but I think um, I want to continue introducing you in the sense that you have been studying upland birds as well as owls since the 60s is it well really the the um probably when i was an uh, undergraduate but mostly the 70s is when i when i really started getting uh so you you studied under is it aldo leopold's son aldo, uh, aldo starker leopold well aldo leopold was the um, father of wildlife management and his son was starker a starker leopold who was a professor at Berkeley, and I was his graduate student, so this, the uh, the son of Aldo Leopold. And, and Starker was a, a very famous wildlife biologist in his own right and was um, quite influential in, in uh, public policy for wildlife management during the um, 50s, 60s, and 70s. Yeah, I have his book on valley quail. Right, right, exactly, yeah. You have a connection with Humboldt State, but you've also been to the University of Minnesota. And where where did you grow up and what got you into birds? Well, I grew up in uh, New Mexico uh, in Albuquerque, 
my uh, family traces its history to 1598 with the Oñate expedition of uh, the first Spaniards who colonized what is now the United States. So uh, I guess there's it's it's a it's a really deep, long rooted history in in uh, New Mexico. And so yeah. I I grew up in in Albuquerque, went to high school there. And then uh, when I graduated from high school, I joined the army and was actually I signed up to go into the Green Berets. But they gave me an IQ test and um, they pulled me aside after they were making assignments after our advanced infantry training infantry training and said that we want we want you to go in an army intelligence well well first of all they asked me um they said well we want to talk to you about your test scores on these iq tests i went oh my god i said i failed another test <laughs> the nuns were right about me you know i really am not very smart and uh, so anyway i i uh, i talked to them and they said well your iq tests are really High and we'd like you to consider going in army intelligence and you can do different kinds of things. And so, so I agreed to that. And so I went into, into the army in um, 1967 and spent, uh, or I mean 1963 and spent uh, four years in the army and got out in 67. And then I started uh, school. Uh, actually, I had started school as a night school when I was in Japan uh, at a uh, base in, in uh, outside of Tokyo. And I would uh, take some nightclub courses at uh, Joji Daku, which is a Jesuit university in Japan. It's kind of like the Harvard of Japan. Wow. But they had a program to allow uh, GIs to, to take night classes there. So I, would, I took some night classes there. And then when I got out of the service, I went into... At the, I went to the University of New Mexico for a year and then to Colorado State University for three years and got my my bachelor's degree and then returned to the University of New Mexico for a master's degree. And then uh, after two years, went to Berkeley, uh, University of California, Berkeley, to work with Starka Leopold. And I was there for four years. And then I went I took a position at the at Cornell University in New York for two years and didn't really like it back east. I'm, I'm really a Westerner. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, come on. I mean, I know about Ithaca and and you know how like they say that the Inuit have 14 words for, for snow. There's a million words for the all the different kinds of horrible drab rain they get in Ithaca. Like like they say it's Ithacating where it's raining, but not quite raining and it's just and there's something like 325 days of cloudy or, or rain there it's it's it can be a pretty grim place for a guy from albuquerque yeah exactly and you know of course the the, the folks at uh, cornell were trying to I, I went from cornell to humboldt state and of course they were trying to convince me that it was going to be worse weather in uh, in um at humboldt because of all the fog but in fact, you're right. It it's not nearly as oppressive weather as as Ithaca was, um, because at least it's cool and it's you know it's nice all year round. And even if it's raining, it's it's pretty amiable weather there. It was just uh, nasty. Um, but that wasn't the reason I was that I I, did, I um, 
I didn't care about the weather. You know, weather, weather is, you know, you just learn to deal with weather no matter where you are, just like hunting. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to, you want certain kinds of weather for certain species, but sometimes it doesn't happen. And so you just deal with it. It was, you know, I just really liked the ambiance of the West and the mountains and, and what, whatnot. That's why I wanted to move back. But anyway, I spent 21 years at Humboldt State and then I was offered a an endowed chair uh, at the University of uh, Minnesota. And although I wasn't really looking to, to leave Humboldt State, um, an endowed chair is, you know, like the godfather. It's an offer you can't refuse. <laughs> and so I, I took this endowed chair because of the provided great flexibility uh, to do what I wanted to do and and so forth. So I stayed there for 15 years and then uh, moved back to uh, our house, which we kept from Humboldt um, in out in the forest east of uh, McKinleyville. Hmm. So that's my story here. So where do birds fit in? Did you grow up as a hunter? I did, actually. Um, When um, when I was a young, young kid, my father. bought a piece of property up in the Jemez Mountains in New Mexico. And uh, uh, he was quite an avid fly fisherman, and he taught me fly fishing at a very, very early age. I mean, I never never even dunked a worm um, in my life, I don't think. And and I just learned to fly fish from age of eight or nine. But anyway, he, he bought this piece of property, and uh, I think it was an acre or, or so, and um, we um, built a cabin. We spent, I don't know, six, seven, eight years building this this cabin. And, and the way we did it was, well, he I, I, I should say we he, he basically built it. And I just I just hustled cement and other things on our weekends. And and um, we would go out fly fishing various places in southern Colorado, New Mexico. And every any time we saw a really interesting looking boulder we picked it up and put it in the back of that truck or in the back of the car and we compiled this giant pile of boulders that we built this um, cabin with uh, over the course of four or five or six years and so while we were doing that he he and I, I'd get bored because I was a young kid he would give me a he had a 22 that he bought me and I would just go off on my own, just running around the woods and, you know, shooting squirrels and whatnot uh, to eat or rabbits. And we'd come back and eat them. So that's how I got interested in hunting. And um, my father developed heart disease when I was young. So he really couldn't hunt. He was a he was an absolute tremendous shot. Um, I am used to used to hunt pheasants in New Mexico with a 22. And he mm. would shoot him out of the air with a 22, which is, of course, illegal. But, you know, nobody nobody cared about legality at the time I grew up. Hey, it's also uh, impressive. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's also illegal now. And so I, I got very interested in, in um, shooting and in becoming proficient with um, with a rifle because my, my dad could shoot, um, could throw a can in the air and keep it in the in the air until all, all 17 uh, shells were expended from that tubular Winchester that, that he had given me. 
And so it was a pump action. So I, I learned to, to be a good shot by just by running around in the woods and, and uh, shooting at rocks and different targets that I picked and, you know, nothing wanton, but just um, uh, learning how to shoot. And of course, my father was uh, very strict about killing anything, anything I killed we had to eat it or I had to eat it. So I was judicious about what I what I shot. I was going to say, do you enjoy those ground squirrels? Uh, I actually never shot a, a ground squirrel. I, I <laughs> once I once shot a pigeon um, outside my house and um, and I just took I, with a pellet gun I had and I threw it in a trash can. And I was turned around from the trash can and my father was standing at the door, said, what did you just do? And I just said, well, I shot a pigeon and threw it in the trash can. He says, he said, you get that pigeon out, clean it and eat it. So yeah, I, I mean, I, pigeons are good. Yeah. Well, you know, but when you boil things, because I had to do it all myself and he didn't. Oh. Give me he just said, you're on your own, Buster. You pull the trigger, you're on your own. And so, you know, it, it sort of taught me that that I needed to develop, develop a sense of respect um, for taking the life, life of animals that I killed. And so I, I you know what, you know, it was, a, it was a good way to teach hunting ethics um, without being draconian about it. Mm-hmm. He just said, you know, this is, this is your responsibility. You just cannot do, you just cannot kill an animal and waste it. Exactly. And so I, that's why I, I learned to hunt and I've been that way through my entire life. And did you hunt birds in New Mexico or did you pick that up when you were um, at Humboldt or because it's interesting. One of the things about your background, as you describe it to me, is you have lived in the, you know, the heartland of a number of pretty major game species. You know, Minnesota is the home of woodcock and grouse and Humboldt has all both valley and mountain quail and the and the Albuquerque has scaled quail and probably Mern's quail at some point. And maybe gambles are in New Mexico as well. And there's grouse in New Mexico. So you've got you've had at least geographic proximity to some of the major upland species that we hunt. Right. Well, I, I, I um, had mentioned about my father's heart disease. And and so. I, I really wanted to, to go hunting when I was a kid, and and um, he worked with a couple of people, um, and he got me lined up to go with them bird hunting, and so I started bird hunting actually with with um, associates of my father, and we went out the first time, and and, I, and a neighbor um, gave me this old single shot sixteen gauge. Um, I think it's I think it's called a Baker Baker shotgun. Um, and so I used that for hunting and and he he um, let me go with these two friends of his. And we went out uh, to New Mexico or, or to a place called Corrales, which is on the north end, north end of Albuquerque, which was now it's a yuppie, yuppified place. And. Uh, but then it was it was where all the orchards were and um, truck farms uh, that serviced Albuquerque uh, to the north of the city and and but there was a lot of pheasants there and I remember oh I must have been in the seventh grade we walked out in this field early in the morning right at first light 
and roosters just started cackling all around me and getting up and and of course I was so cold I just I couldn't even you know raise my gun and of course I was the only one that everybody was spread out the other two folks were spread out and I was by my in the middle with all the roosters around me and I was so cold I couldn't even fumble my gun up uh, to shoot and um, so we didn't get anything but as we walked along I wound up uh, flushing a hen and of course it was illegal to shoot hens but I didn't know the difference between a hen and a, and a rooster and I I shot it and actually killed this, this hen and um, so I you know when I got over there I, I realized that I'd made a mistake and um, I put it you know they said well just put it in your game bag so we put it in the game bag and these guys, it turned out that these guys were bandits I mean they were really outlaws <laughs> and um, they, they didn't really care because they were shooting at hens and roosters and anything else that got up. And so I had only, I was the only one that had gotten a bird that morning. And, and I had this thing in my, in back of my pocket. Fortunately, the tail feathers sticking. And we walked up on this dike and here was a game warden in his truck. And so they just walked right up to him, leaned on the car, started BSing, gave him a cup of coffee and I was just sitting there. I mean, I was mortified that I'd made this mistake and I had this illegal bird in my in my game pouch. Um, and they just bluffed their way through this. And he never even asked us for our licenses or anything. And, um, and because I didn't have one. I mean, they just told me to go. And uh, so we just, we just went on. And uh, after that, I just said, I'm just not going to do this again. I mean, you know, I'm of course, I didn't. I'm learning all of this as, as I'm going along and realizing that something's not right here. And, and um, so, I, again, it was it was the sort of lucky learning experience where you do something stupid uh, when you're 12 years old or 13 years old. And and um, you should have better advice from these people that are taking you. But they they didn't. And um, fortunately, when I got back, I told my dad all about this and he got really furious. Because he said, well, why didn't you buy a license? And they said, well, they said, don't don't bother wasting your money on it. And I'm going. And he said, no, 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 you don't do that. You know, so, you know, I, I learned. Luckily, I learned to make mistakes without it being without penalizing it myself too, too badly. Uh, and so anyway, it got that's how I got to, to learning about uh, quail and realizing that was really a lot of fun to well, not, it wasn't so much the the, the shooting of the birds, uh, but but just the thrill of having these birds rise up in front of you and hearing those cackling and and the pandemonium that goes on and my heart was in my throat and I got really excited about that and so really that's what turned me on to to, to hunting birds and then of course I dutifully went and got a license and any time I got a chance to go out with friends or 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 other people, I would go out quail hunting, and as you say, we had both uh, we had calc, uh, gamble quail in the valleys and scalies on the on the ridges in the in the Chihuahuan grasslands, and of course um, both ringneck pheasants and what we called Afghanistan white wing pheasants, which of which used to be considered a different species of pheasant, but now is considered just a uh, 
a subspecies of uh, ringneck. And uh, they have no ring around their neck, but they have white shoulder patches. Huh. And they they introduced those into the onto the Bosque del Apache National Wildlife Refuge in southern New Mexico, or in south of Albuquerque, not quite southern New Mexico, but uh, getting down that way. Are they still and there? And so we used to have, we had the, both of those in the valley. Are they still there? They pretty much hybridized with with the ringnecks that were there, and. Uh, I'm not sure if, if you can find any purebred uh, Afghans anymore, um, but um, at the time that I up up until about 20 years ago, you would say around the Bosque Apache you would find purebred Afghans, ones that had half a ring around them, and white shoulder patches or no shoulder patches, and then and then the pure ringnecks. And so my assumption is that they the high the, they pretty much got you know, swamped out by the by the uh, ringnecks over there. Gotcha. It's a little bit like what people are saying is going on with the Mexican duck and the black duck and the 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 model duck as they're they're interbreeding with the regular mallards and things are getting a little squishy from a genetic standpoint. Yeah, that's 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 right. And actually, uh, I one of my my first my very first wildlife job after I got out of the army and I went to this uh, the first year after getting out of the army, I, I went to the University of Mexico and um, I, I got a job the, the first year uh, after my first year of college um, at the Bosque del Apache National Wildlife Refuge. And one of my, they were, we were sitting, actually I wasn't sitting, I was listening to the um, managers and the biologists talking about managing for uh, Mexican ducks because they were considered endangered and that this organization problem and there was relatively little habitat. And it seems like they they had a preference of habitat for ponds that were overgrown with uh, shrubs and trees and, and whatnot. And uh, so they were thinking about creating potholes in, um, in the brushy areas in, of the refuge so that they would have these this kind of special habitat and and they were talking about well, how are we going to dig these potholes you know and i raised my hand i says hey i know how to make potholes because of course i've been trained in army intelligence and so they said how do you want to do that and i said i said i just need a backhoe and and uh nitrogen soaked diesel fuel, uh, fertilizer uh dynamite and primacord and wire and I said, <laughs> and I said, I'll have all the potholes you want. <laughs> so we, we dug these holes. And of course, I, I rigged up this whole thing to 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 blow a pothole. And uh, I, I strung out the wire and I was going to just uh, touch it off by uh, touching it to the battery and um, and uh, to the blasting cap and, and uh, get electric shock to the blasting cap. And I. I after about a hundred, uh, 150 feet, I ran out of wire. And I says, I said, don't you have any more wire than this? And they said, no, man, we figured that'd be enough. I says, <laughs> I said, man, man, I said, no way. I says, I said, get underneath the car. And they said, wow, this would be okay. And I, so I said, all right. So I, I hit the wires and started off and I just dove underneath the, the car. And the next thing I see is people, trying to get underneath the car because this 
debris and dirt and trees and everything was raining down on us. And I had this beautiful pothole, though. <laughs> nice. It was about it's, 30 feet long, 15 feet wide, and about six feet deep. It was perfect. It's funny because you're, you know, you're, my experience is the same because I like to hunt Mexican ducks on the Mexican border in Arizona. And we typically find them in the little, the little cattle ponds and not in the big water. So right, you, if you're, exactly. there's a little piece of water and there's five ducks on it, and chances are three or four of them are going to be a Mexican mallard. That's, a, that's right. Quail. So Mount, let's just talk about mountain quail for a second. So you're writing the account about mountain quail for the, which is this, the, some, some major publication right now? Yeah, there, there is a, um, there's a publication. This, this is actually something that, that your, um, the audience would probably want to know about. There's, there's a, a series called the Birds of the World uh, that is, uh, species accounts that have all the natural life history of all the birds of the world that has been written as uh, as we speak by various experts throughout the world. And these are published um, uh, in a co- collaborative venture between uh, um, an organization called Lynx Publication, which is um, a Spanish publishing house. And... Um, the Laboratory of Ornithology at Cornell. And, of course, it you have to pay for a subscription to, to, to this um, Birds, of, uh, Birds of the World account. Uh, but your, the libraries, your library might be able to get you know, a subscription to this, so you should ask your library about that. And the point is, is that you can go online and then read about all of these uh, Birds of the World. And, and right now what I'm doing is writing the account for mountain quail, and also for spotted owls. I, I did an original account for the, for the birds of North America, uh, but we will update it now with some new information that has been published in the last 20 years on mountain quail. And it should be out probably sometime early next year. Oh, good. So they are the largest of our quail. Um, if, if you're listening out there and you don't know what they are, Google them. I'll have pictures in the show notes. They are the quail with the exclamation point on their heads. So Gamble's quail and California quail have the question mark on their heads or the comma. We'd like to call them comma heads. Uh, and the, but the mountain quail have this, this plume that's like, ah, I'm going to run away because they are a – I would argue they are every bit as running bir- a bird as a scaled quail. And they are really, really a gorgeous bird that tends to be – the the kind of the holy grail for somebody who wants to do the quail slam. I mean, they happen to be my local quail, but I'm unusual in that I live in the Sierra Nevada foothills. Whereas for most quail hunters in North America or really anywhere, their geographical distribution is very limited. It's it's California, it's Oregon. There's a few in Idaho, there's a few in Washington, and there's a few in Baja. Um, but that's about it. Like really, if you really want to hunt mountain quail in the united states or which is really pretty much only where they are you'd you know you're going to correct me if i'm wrong but i would say i would send somebody to southern oregon uh the coastal range up by where you live siskiyou which is the sort of the top middle of california or where i live which is the kind of nevada county el dorado county plaster county in the in the high mountains above about six thousand feet does that sound about right 
Yeah, that's about right. But they're also pretty abundant in the in the central coastal California ranges as well, and oh. even in Southern California. So, uh, you know, don't don't sell those those areas short for sure. What makes them different from all the other species? Like, what's how do they how do they show up? Whereas, you know, because I'm always interested in. I just talked to a guy named Kirby Bristow, who's a biologist for the Arizona Game and Fish, about gambles and and Mern's quail, and a little bit about the the mass bobwhite as well. And it's interesting in the sense that you in that part of the world you've got multiple species of quail that are occupying different ecological niches and you know, you have the same deal in the West Coast where you've got both of the, the valley quail and the mountain quail. So at some point there must have had a common ancestor that split and then they've like one went high and one went low, or I guess. Yeah, uh I've actually tried to work this out and um we the through uh using genetic uh, analysis um and um essentially the mountain quail is an ancient lineage uh relative to the valley quail which means that that they evolved much earlier than did the the bobwhite the, the valley quail um gamble quail scale quail and, and the like and um, I, in a paper I wrote at one time, oh, probably 40 years ago now, it's um, I hypothesized that they they very well might have been uh, isolated as separate island uh, areas from the North American continent and evolved independently and subsequently reinvaded the, the west as as these uh the oceans uh receded um so they belong in general all of these quail all the quail in north america belong to a family uh of the new world quail called the Od- odontophoridae and which is different from the old world quail and in that there seems to be two big groups of these quail and one of one of those is is the Merns quail and all of its southern relatives um, in the genus Odontophoros. And then there's all these ones that we have here in in the United States primarily, uh, such as the bobwhite and and the uh, gamble quail, scale quail, mass bobwhite, and the like. And so there's there's these two big lineages, and in the mountain quail is sort of the ancient one for the birds of, from the United States, and it's not entirely clear what relationship that they have to all of these species in uh, Mexico and in Central America. Because when you go down from from the um, Merns quail, as you go further south, there's the marble wood quail, there's the uh, star quail, uh, there's, there's the, um, the tree quails, which are these great big huge quail that almost look like a partridge that live mm. on the volcanoes of Mexico um, in the in the genus uh, Dendrotix. So there's all these quail. I mean, just probably 25, 30 species of them that are found in in southern Mexico, Central America, and South America. And in what the relationships of those, and we we haven't really fully worked that out. Uh, from a genetic point of view, 
Um, but anyway, that's that's sort of a long answer to to the question that you you posed about these relationships. Hey, everybody, I'd like to take this time to thank Filson for sponsoring the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. As you may know, I wear their gear in the field all the time. I love their vests. I love their outerwear. Their tin cloth jacket is awesome. Definitely take a look at their collection of gear. A lot of it is new. A lot of it has been around for decades, and all of it is super, super high quality. If you are in the market for something to wear on your upland hunt this fall, Absolutely check out Filson. I can totally vouch for them from personal experience. Filson was founded in Seattle in 1897 when they started outfitting prospectors for the Klondike Gold Rush. And ever since then, they've been committed to creating best-in-class gear for the world's toughest people in the most unforgiving conditions. What does a mountain quail need uh, in terms of habitat and, and, and food and forage? So one of the one of the issues from a hunter's perspective is is finding the damn things. Um, they are, in my experience, they do not covey up in the same way that valley quail or gambles quail or bobwhites do in the sense that I don't know that I've ever seen a mountain quail covey bigger than about 15. Uh, usually they're somewhat smaller than that. And even though they might be fairly thick on the ground in some places, they're still fiendishly difficult to suss out, um, especially if you don't have a dog. But in the conversations I've had with other quail experts, the general thing that I'm getting is that all quail need shrubs that are anywhere from about waist high to head high. Um, They typically like, you know, berry bushes, things that, you know, that they can eat. Uh, and they don't like a ton of trees. They don't mind some trees, but they don't like a ton of trees because their enemies live in trees. Now, in my personal experience hunting mountain quail, they often do live in, in quite a lot of trees around. So they seem to be an exception in that. And I don't know uh, what to tell somebody, you know, like, you're going to look for this, this, and this if you're going to find mountain quail. So I bet you do know that. Well, you know, you've just hit on some really interesting things. And, um, of course, for, for my doctoral dissertation, I actually lived with mountain quail for four years. Wow. So I, um, every morning I'd get up in the dark and go out of my little cabin and, and hike and up to these places to look for them. And, and at, at the beginning, you know, it, it is like virtually anything else we hunt. Uh, you don't know – you really don't know much about it and you make a lot of mistakes and you don't have much success. And all of a sudden you see one and you say, Oh, that's pretty good. And then you start seeing them more and more as the more time you have. And what, what you're doing is what we call in biology or in wildlife, you're building up a gestalt, a niche gestalt of this animal. So you, if you when you finally get to, to, to know an animal and you go someplace and you look out at that habitat and you see something in it, intuitively you say, there's going to be a deer here. There's going to be uh, California quail. There's going to be mountain quail or whatever. You know that intuitively, but you don't know how to articulate that. And so the subject of my dissertation was to say, what is that niche gestalt of 
mountain quail and California quail where they occur together. Because sometimes you'd find I'd find them alone, mountain quail here and California quail. Sometimes they'd be together. And so I was trying to work that out. And so the way I did this was to just spend a huge amount of time, you know, basically dark, dark to dark, early in the morning to late at night, walking around, finding these birds, recording where they were, taking vegetation measurements at the sites where I would find a, a cubby. And, um, and of course, I would I would collect 10 birds of each species every month to to look at things like their molt and their reproduction and what they were eating and so forth. I de- I developed from that uh, not only my personal gestalt, but also statistical models to try to tell me what separated these two things. And what you hit on was pretty close to, to, to what I observed, and that is the mountain quail is a bird that is uh, covered loving. So they were never more than, I think, 1.3 meters away, which is about five feet away or four feet away from from a shrub or something that they could use as, as escape cover. Whereas the California quail was was quite different. They there was always some escape cover or in the form of shrubs usually uh, near them, but they could be sometimes you know 50 yards away from from a patch of uh, of shrubs that they would flush to. Um, and so you begin after after time, I began to piece together in these models sort of demonstrated that this bird is always around uh, dense shrub cover or as you say sometimes they're under the canopy of trees and um, these other species usually stay more out in the in the in the openings and, and not in the forest now bob whites are are different they 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 can be a a bird of of the um, of the forest of the pine forest in and in other kinds of forests, if they're open in, in the understory. In that's the, true. That's true. I've seen that in Alabama. Right. And, you know, in, in the southeastern United States. And and uh, but the mountain quail, it's all about cover, whether it's whether it's in the form of trees, but they always have to have shrubs down there. But then again, uh, one of the things we try to do in, in, as scientists is disprove that which we 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 think we know. And so I published these papers on the need for shrubs. And one of the first things I did when I became a a professor is I had a couple of graduate students at Humboldt State that studied mountain quail. And and I I asked them, try to find places where mountain quail are not found where it's steep. Because that's one of the, of course, one of the drawbacks to, to hunting mountain quail is that they're always on these, you know, steep, you know, nasty places, and it's dense brush, and and um, it they make you pay a horrible price when you're hunting. Sometimes they do, so, they do. I mean, it's funny. Just a side note, I think the limit on them is ten in California, and I'll be damned if I've ever shot. I've never shot more than four in a day. I mean, it just they're not always on steep spots where I live, though. There's there's lots of them in bowls and and ledges and shelves and things, but it's it, they always need that that cover. 
Exactly. And and so they they have they have to have this cover. And I told these grad students, I said, go find places. And they all, the other thing was that they were always correlated with steep slopes. And as you said, you found you found them where there weren't any. So I had told these graduate students, you go find places where it's whether where there are quail and, and it's not steep. See if you can do that. And sure enough, they found them in various places in northeast California where these on plateaus where the mountain quail were doing just fine. There wasn't any any hills to speak of what whatsoever. And uh, and so what that does is say, well, does that mean that I was wrong that they needed the or was that was the steep slopes correlated with something else, which is the shrubs? And in fact, that's probably what it is. So they, it only happened that the shrubs just happened to be on these steep slopes. And uh, that's why that's why they're there. Ah. And it's, it's not because of the steep slopes. It's because of the shrubs. And the other thing then later, I spent some time in um, Baja, California, in the San Pedro Martir, which is a big mountain range uh, south of Ensenada. Mm-hmm. That sits right on the Sea of Cortez, and we we went up there. We were actually looking for mountain uh, for uh, spotted owls in this mountain range. Really, the uh, spotted owls are that far south? Yeah, there's there's um, re- early records from a uh, hundred years ago from this mountain range. Uh, a guy named Chester Lamb uh, found mountain found mountain quail down in down in this mountain range. So we went to look for them to see if they were still there. And uh, uh, we really didn't find any uh, spotted owls. Well, we we thought we heard one one individual, but we were never quite sure about it. Although I I'm pretty sure it was a mount, spotted owl. But what I did find is it was a lot of mountain quail, and um, they were up on these on the top of this mountain in a an old growth uh, Jeffrey pine forest. And there wasn't a shrub anywhere. Hmm. Yeah, and it had been grazed to the bone, and uh, fires had removed the shrubs, and and uh, grazing and removed the shrubs, and and the, these, but there were mountain quail there all over the place. I'm going, what in the heck is going on here? And it turned out that there were piles of rocks in these little uh, gullies and ravines, and they were ducking into these rocks to use as cover. And so it's it's one of these things where you see something and say, oh, they've got to have shrubs. But no, what they need is cover. And if they and they'll use rocks for cover. So here was this unbelievable population of mountain quail up on the top of this mountain. And and they were all in these ravines that had in gullies that had jumbles of uh, rock piles all over the place. And that's what they were. That's what they were using for their escape cover. So there you have it. You know, it's 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 one of these things that that um, birds do different things in different places. Uh, and as long as the end result is the same for the bird, it's sort of acceptable habitat. So the end result here is that they need to have escape cover and they they'll use whatever they can uh, as escape cover and these rocks were apparently fine, just like the dense cover cover of of canopy of these oak broads what we call broad, broad sclerophyll forests, which is a combination of 
of deciduous oaks, live oaks, and and species like madrone, madrone trees, where it's dense canopy and then there's shrubs underneath. They'll use this dense forest as their escape cover. My, I'm thinking on the fly here, but my initial thought when you're describing this is, oh, well, they have to be so close to cover because they don't have as many eyes as the valley quail have. You know, if you've got a bigger covey, you've got a more set of eyes. Chances are somebody in that group is going to be like, something's coming. And they have a little bit more time to, to fly away or run away. And the mountain quail coveys are just so much smaller that they need to be closer because they don't have that margin of error. You know, that, that, that's, that's, a good, uh, that's a good hypothesis. And, and, uh, and I think it's one that definitely needs to be considered in thinking about uh, why, these, why they want to be so close to cover. And another thing that you see with mountain quail is their behavior is much, much more subdued than, say, a, a California quail or a gamma quail. So if you – I mean, most of us get a chance to watch California quail. So if you go out to any state park that's out in the foothill country somewhere, you're, you're going to see California quail. Yeah. And if you, if you just watch with them – watch them for a while, you know, you, you you say, you know, these guys just can't leave each other alone. You know, they chase each other and they m- run around and, and, you know, fluff their feathers and do all kinds of stuff. They're always ma- moving around and, and messing around. And if you watch mountain quail for any period of time, they'll do a little bit of that, but they're much, much more subdued in, in, in their reactions. And uh, and I, I've I've literally spent hundreds, if not thousands, of hours just sitting quietly, watching them, watching mountain quail do their thing, and they just move very cautiously, and they're always looking around, and um, and I think it's because of this thing that you're getting back to with the multiple eyes, and in the case of mountain quail, their habitat is so dense. That when, a, when, when they see a predator, that predator is dangerously close to being able to kill them. Mm. Uh, and so they're, they're, I think what they're doing is reducing their, their overt behavior just so they're not as conspicuous. So it's, it's like you going deer hunting, for example. You're sitting there um, walking along or, or looking and with your binoculars, and all of a sudden you see something doesn't seem right and what you've seen maybe is a twitch of a leg or a flick of an ear and that's what alerts you to to something that you need to focus on to try to then determine what is it that I think I saw there and that's what happens when when a predator sees a mountain quail it's going to be on top of it and so the, the mountain quail, I think, have reduced their their overt behavior as a result of that. And, and I've even seen something quite unusual that's never been recorded for a for any species of quail, and that is what happens when a mountain quail gets caught out in the open by at least, I mean, caught out in the open mean, meaning they have the potential to be seen by a predator. I bet they hunker down. Right. They hunker down, but they do something even more than that. What I wa- one time 
um, I watched a company of, of quail. They were feeding. And all of a sudden, one of them gave an alarm call, and they all hunkered down, all went flat to their belly. But simultaneously, the entire covey turned their bodies and oriented their head to heads away from this um, Cooper's hawk that flew into a tree um, about, say, 20 yards, 25 yards away. And that, that Cooper's hawk knew that, that they were there. And he was sitting there looking, and I just sat there quietly watching it. And they all just moved, you know, with their tail oriented towards that, that bird. And then that hawk flew around me and landed just above me. And the, as that bird was flying around, they just all simultaneously moved their their bodies the same way and, and continue to orient their tails towards that that birds and as I looked at them with my binoculars because I'm I'm sort of sitting there and I'm a little bit above ground level and so I could see where they were and they were hard to pick up Crazy. because the, those 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 white marks of their of their tails and their and on their flanks sort of blended in and provided a disruptive coloration uh, uh, to that to that hawk, so that hawk couldn't actually pick them up. It and, also puts them in a spot to where they can flush away from the hawk in unison. Right, and they and of course they all had their heads turned like that, and they were watching the hawk. So that the hawk did that, they would take off flying. Do you know who else does that? Snipe, snipe do that exact same thing. They uh, really, they, yeah, because when you're hunting snipe in a bog. And a lot of times there's no cover at all, but, you know, I'll be damned if I can ever see them. But the one in a hundred times that you do see them on the ground before you walk up on them, they're always with their, their tails towards you. And they're kind of looking, they're giving you side eye, like kind of out of the corner of their eye. So they're looking at you, but they're, they're kind of pre, they're in like a pre-flush position, which is why you almost never see snipe on the ground before they flush. Now, that, that's really interesting. So let me ask you this. Refresh my recollection of what these snipe look like, and do they not have a vertical stripe going down their their wing there on the on the uh, up? So when you when you if you be looking down on them, there's um, maybe a, a stripe on their on their wings or their they're pretty okay. cryptic. Yeah. Um. So the the bottom of a snipe or the top of a snipe does have these kind of, um, you know, from like they have stripes on their head and they've got like three ish white stripes going from like their head towards their tail. And, but everything else is pretty cryptic, but yeah, there's definitely a lined pattern going from uh, head to tail on a snipe. If you look at it from above. So they, in, in a sense, the pattern of their back is similar to the pattern of a mountain quail back when you look at it, because they have those, big long uh, uh, stripes going, I mean, along their wing, mm-hmm. those those white um, white marks going down their back. Well, that's cool. What you're observing here is, is something we call, you know, an adaptation that's convergent uh, across species. So whatever benefit that that disruptive pattern has, it's being expressed in various species. And you'll see this with um, lots of birds that live in, in grassland habitats mm. with, uh, say, yellowish bars or st- 
lines going down their back. Like if you look at a Merns quail, their back has a very similar pattern to other species that live in those same grassland habitats because that's that's disruptive camouflage and, and uh, it's selected for but because of predation by these birds. Right. So, the, so if you're ever hunting um, common pigeons, the white one always gets shot first. Right. Yeah. Because it's your eye is drawn to it. And I bet you that's the same thing with, with uh, hawks and things as well. Yeah, exactly. It, you know, and it, it, and it turns out that we have a lot of vagrant birds that come from Asia and other places in California. And there there's always something different about them. We, you mm-hmm. know, people have measured these, um, the characteristics of these birds, and there's always something a little bit different about them. But sometimes you, you read these bird reports and these vagrants get picked out of a flock by these predators. Yeah, I mean, including us. I mean, I've 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 missed it, but I've seen Eurasian uh, widgeon in flocks, a regular widgeon, two or three times, and and people people shoot the heck out of Eurasians and and our refuges in California in the winter. I mean, they're because you can see them; they're different. Yeah, it's just it's your your eye is naturally drawn to something different, to something unusual, and you know, as a guess, maybe that's because predators recognize that something different might be something inferior or um, say like you know broken wing or um, not the adequate number of feathers to give the same degree of potential for flight escape and so they just pick it out and thinking that's going to be the easiest target and sure enough they get them as a shotgunner um, when that happens it negates well basically if, if you see that you won't flock shoot because you, there's something, one thing to focus your eye on. So with goose hunting here in the winter, if by chance you get an eagle head, you know, a blue phase snow goose, pretty much everybody's going to shoot at that particular goose because it's it's the it's the different one and it keeps your your as a as a shooter, I guess the same thing would be as a hawk. Like okay, there's a sea of white and oh, and there's the one blue one. We're going to shoot that one right. blue one. Right. And and in fact, when you think about it, this is one of the reasons why. Uh, game and fish agencies were able to institute a point system for ducks because, in fact, hunters can, if if, if they don't, you know, sky bust, if, if they wait for birds to come in to, to spread, they can pick the males and the females out and the different species out because we yeah. recognize them, you know, as as different and we can recognize the males. You see a big green head coming up. And right away, your gun is drawn to it. Right. I mean, I mean, I'm not a perfect at duck ID all the time, but I always know that it's basically my rule is I'm I'm shooting for the skies as long. I mean, obviously, I can tell a duck versus not duck, but I'm going to shoot for the skies until I have the limit of any given thing. Like if I've shot my one pintail or if I've shot my my two canvas backs or whatever those little sublimits are, then you have to pay more attention. Right. I'd like to take a moment to thank Hunt to Eat for sponsoring the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. Hunt to Eat is a casual hunting and angling apparel company based on community, real food, and conservation. Head over to hunttoeat.com and check out the Hankshaw t-shirt collection. You'll also find wild game recipes, hats, and other kinds of gear, including aprons with the Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook logo on them. If you use the code Hankshaw at checkout, you will get 10% off your order. Thanks again to Hunt to Eat, and back to the podcast.
So with quail, especially mountain and valley quail, I bet they eat different things, don't they? Yes, uh, actually, it's quite different. That was a big component of my my dissertation. And uh, what basically I was able to do with these collections that I mentioned earlier in the talk was that I I would go out and and shoot 10, 10 mountain quail and 10 California quail uh, every month of the year just to see what their food was, what they were eating over the course of the year, as well as to um, look at their molt and their parasites and and their reproductive organs and, and other other things, as well as to make a a specimen for the Museum of Vertebrate Zoology at Berkeley. I, I deposited all my skins in, in those in the museum. But in doing that, uh, and coupled with watching these birds intently and what, what they were actually feeding on, I found that the California quail is a generalist forager on annual uh, seeds and, pl- uh, and plants. So they primarily eat clovers and fillery or rhodium and uh, other legumes as seeds during the, the summertime. And then when those plants um, they become leafy in, in the in the wintertime, they eat the, the, the leaf matter. And of course, they, they'll eat other stuff as well. I and mean, then they'll eat berries and they'll 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 eat um, pieces of acorn and, and the like. But um, the mountain quail is is very and they and they do this the cow quail by or valley quail they do this by you know scratching in the litter like you, you see them if you just watch them in, in the summertime they just scratch away and and um, pick up seeds and in in the wintertime they're just clipping these uh, green leafy forbs. But mountain quail, they'll they'll eat a lot of that. Probably 40 or 50 percent of their diet is are, are those annual plants and and uh, seeds and leafy material. But they also eat a very high proportion of perennial plants. Hmm. And they they eat these perennial plants. And, and by perennial plants, we mean plants that live from year to year without dying, and depending on upon reseeding. You so, talk about like, berries and such? Yeah, we were talking about blueberries and uh, what we call vaccidium, bla- uh, blackberries to uh, poison oak seeds. And uh, anything that has a berry on it, they'll, they'll eat that. They seem to really like uh, Prunus marginata, where I'm from, that, that nasty little bright red plum that tastes super astringent. Mm-hmm. So we always see them always see them in either that that prunus marginata the the bitter the bit, little bitter cherries they like white thorn i don't i think that's just probably for cover um and then kind of a surefire way to find them is in uh if you've got white thorn and then you've got the 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 those spiky gooseberries and and red currants kicking around up in the high sierra yeah okay so the the thing about this white thorn that, that's in a that's in a genus of shrub called Ceanothus. And Ceanothus is comprised of many species that occur here in California. And one of them is whitethorn, another one they call buckbrush, and an, another one miner's misery. Oh, I've and, seen that one too. Yeah. And it turns out that 
ceanothus, as a genus of plant, they produce a huge amount of seeds. Huh. And they're and the, the mountain quail love those things. So they eat quite a bit of ceanothus. Um, they eat these like these prunus that you talked about, these uh, uh, bitter cherries, and they eat poison oak, and um, they actually eat acorns as well. And, and you know, unlike a cow quail, which sort of depends on something to break it up for them, and they eat the little pieces, mountain quail just swallow these things whole. You know, I mean, yeah, I've seen not, that. Yeah, not, not too big a acorn. The and, uh, the uh, Merns quail do the same thing with emery acorns. Right, right, exactly, and. Um, the the other interesting thing about mountain quail that separates them from California quail is that the way in which they get these foods is often very different. So, say 90% of the foraging you see Cal- California quail or valley quail doing is the scratching uh, and pecking uh, behavior. Well, this mountain quail does that. They also dig into the ground to get these little bulbs or, or bulblets of, of, a, of a plant called lithophragma. And I don't even know if it's got a common name to it, it's, but the genus is lithophragma. And, and it's, it has these little bulblets and it digs them up and it really spends a lot of time digging uh, those things up, just like the Merns quail too. Actually, yeah. Majority of their, their those diggings are going down there and getting these little oxalis bulbs. Exactly, they've got big long claws. Right, exactly. And um, but mountain quail, besides digging and pecking like the cow quail, they will fly up into shrubs um, or trees and eat these, pick the berries off or the or the seeds off, um, and um, sometimes even the acorns. And then they'll also they'll, uh, be foraging along in a annual plant called Madia. Well, has a has a big seed head, and it sits about well, depending on the, the year, of course. But if it's not too great a rainfall, when 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 this the seed head of this thing is about say 14, 15 inches off the ground, where the where it's they're too tall for a quail to reach. These mountain quail jump up there and grab them and, and take the seed head off and eat, and eat them. So huh. they, they, they jump for food, they dig for food, they climb for food, and they also scratch and peck. So the way in which they forage is much broader than this California quail. And that allows them to use these forest habitats much more effectively than, than California quail do. They seem to also be the the most cold hardy quail, although they don't like snow. So for us, we have our our quail spots now in a, you know September and October, and then but the problem is we're right now in the middle of, of the D three five deer zone, which you know screws us because there's so much activity in the woods that the the quail are all hunkered down and they're virtually impossible to find while there's 40 million deer hunters in the woods. But they're going to be gone in a couple of weeks, and then that gives us November. November's usually good. And then, but the season goes until the end of January. And so once you get to December and January, you start to get our good spots are all snowed out. But I have found that the the mountain quail will fly down to below the snow line in the dead of winter. And you'll find them in places in December and January that you'll never find them in September. 
Yeah, you you hit on one of the one of the one of the really interesting things about mountain quail again, and that is they are the only quail in North America that migrate. Uh, they they migrate out of the snow uh, because ob- for obvious reasons they can't really reach down and get a lot of the food that's 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 fallen off the trees by that time, and uh, the, the the berries and whatnot that were on the shrubs that they could climb up to get have also fallen off uh, and, and fallen down on the ground. So they they have to pretty much move out of the out of this high snow zone. And so there's a couple of things that they do. One is that they some of them will drop just straight down below um, the snow line and stay right, you know, move up and down following the snow line. And others will actually just get up and move a long distance. Now, you mentioned earlier in at the beginning of this conversation that I that I had um, studied these birds for a long time and was one of the experts uh, of them. And there there are two other uh, folks who've studied uh, mountain quail quite a bit. One is David Delahanty, who is a professor at Idaho State University, and he did his master's or his Ph.D. work at the University of Nevada, Reno. And he also he studied them in the Sierra Mountain. I studied my mountain quail mostly in the in the Central Coast Range, uh, and then have observations throughout the range wherever they occur. Uh, and uh, David uh, primarily studied in the Sierra Nevada and and also in the Mojave Desert, uh, but also had some ca- captive birds that he observed. And then there's a fellow by the name of Michael Pope who was at Oregon State University, and Michael uh, did his Ph.D. in in southwest Oregon and and also in the Hell's Canyon area. But what he did was put radios on these birds. Because the big big question I always had, and I try to get money uh, from agencies and whatnot to to get radio um, callers to put on uh, mountain quail, and I never could convince anybody that – it was a worthwhile idea, uh, but he was able to do this, and he put um, radios on quite a few birds, and, and what he found sort of cooperated what we had seen um, just in general, like what you observed, that these birds are, are not, you know, when the snow falls, they're not where, you used, where you'd find them at this time of the year. They're somewhere else, and we know from his studies and, and one marking study in Idaho by a, a fellow named Orsman, uh, that they they do either one or two things, oh, one of three things. One, they'll they'll try to stay where they are and tough out the the the, the snow a little bit, or they drop down below the snow level and then follow it back and forth, or they go somewhere else. And this somewhere else can be in 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 the case of uh, Michael's uh, Pope studies was you know, up to 20 miles away. And huh. in the Sierra Nevada, there was a really wonderful study that was done in the 19, late 1940s by the California Fishing Game biologist uh, led by a fellow named Enderlin. And they they actually spent four or five years studying these, these birds and just without telemetry, but just following them around. And they believe that some of these populations of, of, uh, or some of these birds actually migrated 50 miles away, and they mostly did it by walking. 
So they walked. <laughs> they walked. I'm just imagining like, uh, you know, twelve mountain quail just like derp, 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 just like walking and walking. It's kind of like this kind of a quail version of the the Donner Party. Right. Yeah. Or just like deer. You know, they're just they're just emulating what our what our local deer do in these snow areas. So that that's a any anyway. It's a real it's a real fun thing. So for for the people that hunt quail. Um, if, if you're on the coast of California, you don't really have to worry about snow migrations for the most part. And even when it snows, because it does snow where, on, on the central coast where, where I did my study, they basically get underneath their shrubs and just hang out because the snow is not going to last that long. And they're able to tough it out because there's plenty of forage that, that under these uh, snow-free areas underneath the shrubs. In, in the Sierra, they, they, they drop down to areas so there there's two strategies i would suggest one is just go to the snow line and and look for shrub covered steep hillsides in along the snow line and the other thing to do is just to spend some time with your family and uh your kids or or you know, your spouse and just go down um searching for mountain quail in these lower areas uh because they 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 won't have any compunction uh, or any problem invading uh, cow quail habitat for short times during during this area. Now, they won't be out in the open, op- so, mu- so much openings, but they'll be out in these uh, foothill areas of, of brush that you find throughout the Sierra Nevada. As you've hunted them over the years, how important is hunting with a dog? Because we hunt without a dog, and I've, I know some people hunt with a dog, and I I get the sense that it would be a very particular kind of dog that could help you out a lot, but I suspect a dog would help you. I mean, what would what are your thoughts on that? You're you're absolutely right about a particular type of dog, and I'm I don't mean breed. I'm talking about the individual. Right. Uh, the, the the thing of the, the reaction of a mountain quail to a predator besides hunkering down like we talked about before, is to start running. And they're going to run before they before they fly. And for most bird dogs, that's sort of the that's the thing you you really don't want to get your dog chasing birds. Uh, Now, flushing dogs, you know, they're 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 going to that's not going to be a problem for them because they're not going to they're generally not going to hold the point anyway. They're going to flush them out. So what what I've always felt is that it really depends on the dog and the conditions in, under which you're, you're, you're hunting. Now, the reason I was successful in my PhD work, um, and really there had never been a, a doctoral dissertation done on a, on a, um, on mountain quail prior to my, to my research, um, it was because I had a dog that for some reason understood how to handle a mountain quail. And this this dog was a German short-haired pointer. His name was Toshio. I named him after um, my best Japanese hunting buddy when I was stationed in Japan in um, in the army in this intelligence unit. Uh, there was a local gun shop there, and I was befriended by a, the, the man who owned this shop, and his name was Toshio. And he had a German short hair that we hunted copper pheasants and green pheasants and 
and uh, Japanese um, or uh, Chinese bamboo partridge and another species with. And so I really liked this short hair and he named it John for John Wayne. Hmm. So when I when I got this short hair uh, as, as, a, as an undergraduate student at Colorado State, I named him after my hunting buddy, Toshio. And, and Toshio, this dog, grew up in my sleeping bag when I worked on bighorn sheep as a as a undergraduate student, as an assistant for a graduate student in Colorado. And it it this dog turned into a machine because I mean you can imagine a dog that ran 20 miles a day at uh, 11,000 foot elevation for for the first six months of after it became a you know a after it was four from the time it was four months to the time it was uh, 10 months, it, it ran 10, 15 miles a day up and down these mountains at the, in the high Colorado Rockies. It Crazy. was an absolute machine. And, but it, it had a knack that I've never seen any other of my bird dogs have about just sort of figuring out the gestalt of escape of a, of a mountain quail. And when I took him out on my studies of mountain quail, right away he figured out that these things are going to run away from you. And what he needed to do was get around them and stop them. So what, once I re- realized what he was doing and the, the birds would get confused and they'd sit there and then he would sort of crowd them back and they'd come back to me. And then I just with a hand signal, I just have him sit. I could see him in the brush and he'd sit. And then, then I would sit down and then he would then I just make him lay down and he'd lay down. And then these quail would just sit there hunkered for 20, 25 minutes. And then they'd finally get up and they'd start moving around and then they'd move down towards me and they'd come out in the open. I mean, in, in open meaning where I could see them better. Uh, they were still in the, you know, in the brush and under the tree canopy. And and then they would start foraging and, you know, doing the thing and they'd sort of forget about it. And he would just lay up there. Um, or if 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 they moved off, I'd just call him down to me and he'd come to my side and then he'd just lay down and go to sleep. Well, I just watch him with my binoculars uh, as they were doing their thing. But he learned that if he could if he could get around him, he could stop him from from running away. And then uh, I could move forward and they were afraid to go towards him. And as I crashed through the brush, they would then get up and then boom, you know, I could if I was lucky, I'd get one um, and uh, he would he would retrieve it. And that's the other thing about a dog is that it's it's really helpful to, to have them a dog to retrieve, because if you don't kill that bird cleanly, uh, it's going to run from you. Uh, hmm. And man, it, they're hard. They're really hard to find. Yeah, not all quail will run, but I uh, I was talking to a, another biologist named Ryan O'Shaughnessy, and he hunts scaled quail pretty exclusively in West Texas. And he's like, he said the exact same thing that you've got to. He uses he uses lead sixes for that reason because he doesn't want his scalies running away on him. It seems like it would be hard to pin down like what you know what kind of dog or or how you would even go about it. Well, you know, to be honest. Mine was just pure blind luck. I just happened to be blessed with a dog that nobody wanted. Uh, it was the runt of the litter. Um, and this friend of mine who who had the 
who had the female, um, he had sold all the pups, and this this last dog was, um, well, I, I should I'd say a, it, I call it a runt, but it, it really qu- wasn't quite a, a runt. It was just a small, the smallest of the litter, and nobody wanted a dog, and and so you know he practically begged me to 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 buy it, and I didn't have any money, and I was a, I was a not starving undergraduate student. And finally, I said, "Hey, I'll give you 50 bucks for it." And so, and that, which to me was like a fortune at right. that time when I was a, when I was an undergraduate. And he, I mean, he he was selling them for 150. And so he, you know, he sold it to me. And um, that this this dog never was a big short hair. It was on the short, short uh, small end of a short hair. But I think that having it just grow up. In my sleeping bag every night because it, where we where we had our base camp was 11,500 feet and it was always cold and I felt sorry for the the little you know dog it was pretty small when I got it so he would just sleep in my sleeping bag and and he just grew up in my you know for the first five or six months of his life in my sleeping bag and, but he he got to be in tremendous shape because of this and then because we were so close and spent all this time together we just knew each other. And we we he understood like every dog you wish understands that you're a team. And I've had I had my last short hair. She was a wonderful dog, but she kind of thought she was independent a lot of times. She didn't always get the the drill that you know this is a this is a team effort here. Um, and so where she was good, she just never quite reached that plateau that that first dog did in terms of realizing this is a team and he would and I trained him right away because when because when you're working on other animals like bighorn sheep you can't spook them and no. so I had to you know I couldn't blow the whistle I had to do everything with hands and I I trained him to do everything come here go left go right everything like you'd see a say a lab doing these field trials that that dog knew to do by hand and knew when to behave itself and when to stay here. And, and I mean, you could, you could have a quail walk right in front of its nose and it would not move a muscle. Mm. And um, so it was able to, it was able by the, by the nature of the dog, I was able to accomplish this. And so I guess getting back to your question, you just have to have a dog that's patience, patient uh, is, is willing to break, off a point and come to you or to do a hand signal and go to where you want it and to be absolutely uh, rigid on its point. And, and um, you know, like sometimes the dog didn't know I was there and I would direct him with a, with a hand signal to get around where I, where I knew the quail were headed and it didn't, because he was upwind from them, didn't know they were going there and get him, get him around the top side of these birds. And then he would, then he would lock onto them. When he when he finally found him up, smelled him up on top. So mm. it, it's a, it's a dog that you have to have absolute control over, and that's that that's not prone to breaking. <clears throat> Unless you have, a, I mean, it also sounds like you might be successful with a, a smallish flushing dog. Yeah, I th- I think a, a small flushing dog, or like I said, even uh, even a lab uh, could uh, would probably like small labs. Yeah, small lab. Yeah. Just, just not the big old blockheads because you know they're not going to do well at altitude. 
Well, not only that, you know, the the the, uh, the brush can be so dense sometimes that they're going to, you know, they're going to be uh, hitting it a lot. Mm. And a sleeker, smaller dog can uh, can can move through that thing. Actually, I, when you as you as you mentioned the flushing dog, I was thinking, you know, one of these uh, 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 water spaniels might actually be a pretty decent dog for for doing something like that. As long as they have a kind of a slick coat, otherwise you could be, you know, combing things out of their. their oh coat. yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, before I, mean, I, I, I want to cover two things before we we wrap up. Uh, one is calls. So I've I've noticed that mountain quail aren't terribly cheapy, um, but you can use a call and you'll sometimes get them to call back. I've got both a a handmade call made by a guy named Jim Matthews, and I've got a um, a Primos call that both do pretty well in terms of making a, a mountain quail sound. But, and I've had, I've only just started using them, so I'm not terribly experienced with it, but I'd, I'd be wondering about your thoughts on using a call in, in the hunting context. Well, I've never done it. Uh, so anything I say here is just speculation, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I see no reason why they wouldn't work just like they would, they work for cow quail or chuckers or, or uh, road deer or anything else that that responds to to vocalizations. There's no reason in the world why they wouldn't wouldn't work. Okay. Yeah, I know. Uh, I know the Ryan, the guy who's who studies uh, scale quail and hunts them quite a bit. Uh, he says no way on a scale quail. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I guess you know because it's such an esoteric species in terms of you know you're going to get a lot of people who want to hunt mountain quail who are not from the West. So it's to finish their quail slam or it's just to get themselves in that kind of a habitat. What would be some of your sort of basic 30,000 foot tips for somebody who lived in say Kansas um, to be successful if, if he or she wanted to go out on a mountain quail hunt? I think that um, one of your, one of your early observations about how they're harder to find later in the winter is, is a key here. Uh, you want to you want to hunt these mountain quail early in the season before the snow get uh, comes on. And and there's there's two reasons for this. One is that of course they migrate um, as we as we discussed. They're liable to not be in the places that you would normally see them in the winter time. Uh, and and the other thing is that when the um, annual plants uh, leaf out or, or they, see, uh, they sprout and they turn to green leafy material for a lot of their food, they're, and they're not tied to water, they really disperse. And one of the things we didn't talk about, which is appropriate here, is that this Michael Pope when he did his his work in Oregon with uh, uh, radio telemetry, he found he, you know he estimated the sizes of their their home ranges, and they're they're huge relative to uh, any other quail. Hmm. So mountain, or at least the, the quail that most people from say Kansas would be um, familiar with. So maybe a, a a bob white home range might be anywhere from ten to to 30 acres in size, a mountain quail home range can be 500 acres in size. Wow. I had no idea because I had been hunting them under the assumption that they're always within a quarter mile of water. 
Well, they are when, when before the rains come. Oh, okay. And, but once once the rains come, then they disperse away from these water sources, and so you can't depend on the on the water sources. So, so the, the anyway, that's the that's the second point. So you 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 come early before they've migrated and before they're away from water, and so you hunt um, along the areas that have like riparian zones or guzzlers, um, places that that um, you know that they're going to be fairly close to because multiple coveys uh, will move, will use any particular uh, guzzler or spring or, or whatnot. But the other thing is that they don't like to come into uh, stock tanks or, or water sources that are open. They, they want to have cover coming in here. And that's why uh, guzzlers with, with brush piles or, or springs that are tucked away in some canyon or streams are are the main places that they 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 come to drink, and and you know some places they'll even go down in caves and and drink and down in in caves in these in these desert areas. So I would I would tell a, a person from that wanted it to get a mountain quails to come early um, before the rains come and like you say before the the deer season if they can do it here our mountain quail season usually starts a week or so before the deer season. Um, but even at that, you know, just um, one way to, to think about or to, to, to scout for them is to walk along roads and look in the dust because they'll come out to, to, to um, dust in the, in, to take dust baths and you'll see their, their, um, their footprints in there. But uh, you have to remember that, uh, you have to be, especially if you're, you're not familiar with these birds, that sometimes California quail and mountain quail are in fairly close proximity in these mountain areas of, uh, of California. So if you're really high, it's, you're almost all assured it's mountain quail. But if you're down in these intermediate elevations, you can have both mountain quail and California quail in and um, in the same areas. So you have to be very careful because at least up here on the north coast, there's an early mountains quail season that starts uh, before the California quail season. That's true yeah. here, too. So for us in the Sierra Nevada, I generally don't even start hunting them until I'm about 5,000 feet because I almost never see California quail b- above 5,000 feet. So it's mm-hmm. it, it helps a lot. It also happens to coincide with the fact that Virtually all of the public land uh, starts at four or five thousand feet. So I mean, if you're in the three thousand foot range in the Sierra, you're pretty much a in California quail habitat and b on private land. Yeah. Well, here on here on the coast range, see that the, the, the some of the quail quail be almost as high as the tops of these uh, coast range mountains. Oh. Yeah, depending on you know whether or not uh, you know what what the particular type of vegetation there is there. Uh, so that you know that they often were well you'll see them um coveys very close to, in close proximity so you, you have to be really careful and, and i only emphasize this so that that you don't make mistakes if you come here early and and shoot a california quail by by mistake and get a ticket right you know you don't want to do that um and, i think another point that i will have to anybody listening to this is if you're going to come all the way to Oregon or California or wherever to, to try and get your mountain quail, 
you kind of have to put away the notion in your head that you're going to get the perfect point and the perfect flush and that bird on the wing. Like it just can it happen? Yeah, I've seen it happen, but it's pretty rare. Chances, I'll put it this way: if you out there are hunting next to me and you are only going to kill a mountain quail on the flush from a point, I will kill six before you kill one. I'd agree with that. Yep. I mean, it's, you know, I will ground pound them because if you're going to run like a rabbit, you're going to die like a rabbit. Again, you know, it's, it's like this thing with that, with that, um, my dog Toshio, when he was, when he, when he realized that he could circle around these things and stop them, I could walk right up to him and flush him and shoot him on the fly. And, and I, I did, I did shoot a lot on the ground when I was collecting, but then it's no prisoners, you know, I mean, it, it has nothing to do with sport, has nothing to do with meat. Although I did eat all of them. I would, fl- I would uh, bone them out af- afterwards after I made the skins and saved the skeletons for going mm-hmm. into museum specimens. I would save all of the pieces of meat for, for eating. Um, but uh, essentially, you can't get a, a dog to, to point them if it's if it's the right dog and it's the right circumstance. Now, one place where I will say that I think you might have a chance to do some pointing is in recently burned areas. Hmm. So if you go into recently burned areas, I mean, when I'm talking about recent burns and probably the second to fourth year of the burn before it gets so overgrown with a brush that you can't walk through it, but that you can actually, uh, and, and I'm talking here, um, mainly stand replacing burns. And unfortunately we're having way too many of those now. Yeah. And the, the only thing that, that, that is, is a silver lining is that it creates a, a lot of mountain quail habitat and a lot of, um, deer habitat. And you know, uh, morel mushrooms. Yeah, morel mushrooms. Yeah, exactly. But but when you when you walk through these these burned areas that have say anywhere between twenty five percent shrub cover up to about seventy five percent, which is what you can reasonably walk through, um, you, you'll find mountain quail in there, and and if it's not too dense, they'll in in your dog oftentimes a dog by chance alone comes in and and gets a quail between you and it just because it's running there and that that'll stop them and you very well might be able to get points off there the other place that you might be able to get points is in these central coastal california uh forests which i mentioned earlier in the program called the broads clarifol forest which are again the uh, the um, madrone, uh, live oak, uh, deciduous oak, uh, mixed uh, hardwood forest. In those areas where you have uh, uh, shrubs in the understory, particularly poison oak, you can often walk through it fairly easily, and the quail will will very often hold in these little patches of brush. And, uh, and actually, the very first quail, a uh, really mountain quail I ever killed was in that sort of a situation. It's hmm. a sort of fun little story. Uh, I um, was thinking about working on mountain quail for my 
doctoral dissertation, and I had spent uh, uh, my first summer uh, messing around looking for them all over the place and uh, had found a population in the central coast that I thought I could work on. And I came back and gave a seminar on my proposal to the uh, gra other graduate students and professors in my uh, in in the Museum of Urban Zoology. And basically, I wanted to repeat a study that I had done on bantail pigeons, which is uh, reproductive cycles and, and, and the like. And um, you have to remember that Berkeley is the number one public research institution in the world. And the expectation for a graduate student is very high. And so when I gave this proposal um, to do this study, it, to be kind, it was pedestrian. It yeah. was a simple uh, study. It was easy. And one of the professors stopped me about 15 minutes into my proposal as I sort of outlined the general idea. And he said, uh, Rocky, he says, are you so married to this proposal that you can't drop right now and all, save us all another 45 minutes of time? And <laughs> you can imagine for a graduate student to have that sort of criticism, uh, it was pretty... Um, pretty humiliating yeah ouch <laughs> yeah it was pretty it was pretty bad and but uh, the professor was right this was this is a really simple-minded thing and it was easy to do and it wasn't gonna it wasn't real effort to break the frontiers of science and that's what he was telling me he says don't do something simple don't do something you've done before do something that's novel and so i was sort of depressed about it and, and i i I thought, well, I need to I need to go clear my head on this. And I took my dog down to the study area that I'd planned on working on. Just gonna go hunting and and you know hang out a while and um, lick my wounds. And so we were walking out into the forest, and we'd be walking on this steep hillside, which was this type of the area that I declined. You know, little patches of brushes, poison oak here and there, and in, in, in this broad sclerophyll forest. And my dog locks up on point. And so I walk up and I kick the brush and this covey of quail gets up. And, you know, I just instinctively swung on one and, and smoked that and then swung on another one and got another bird. And luckily, and um, because I'm, I'm, I'm what, I'm not, I'm not a really great shot. But I'm what I call a streak shooter. So if I'm on, I'm on. If I'm not, I'm not. It's as simple as that. And so I got this double and, and my dog went and got the first one and brought it back and it was a valley quail. Okay. So then it went and got the second one, came back and was a mountain quail. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I'm going like, wow. And, and this light went off in, the, in, the, in my head that, you know what you ought to do? You ought to study the relationships of these two birds in what we call sympatry, where they occur together. Yeah. And, and this had never been done before. I mean, actually, nobody had ever done a dissertation on mountain quail before. Uh, but that's not, not that's not novel in itself. That's just 
you know, a circumstance of just hasn't happened. And so, but at that time, the big thing in ecology was how competition between individual species um, structured their communities. And it was hypothesized that competition really forced the way in which species divided their habitats and their niches and, and so forth. And so a light went off, said, I'm going to I'm going to study the comparative ecology of these two species in simpantry and try to figure out what that. And that was all because of a legitimate criticism, as harsh as it was. You know, the person wasn't trying to be nasty to me. They were just being, well, this is just Berkeley, man. Yeah. <laughs> if you're going I had to a similar Berkeley, experience at Wisconsin, actually. Uh, I was a military historian, and uh, I was in a PhD program in Wisconsin. And as a military historian, uh, nobody had told me. So you you studied under professors who did work that you wanted to emulate, at least at least partially. And this is very good advice for anybody who's in you need to do that because nobody told me about this. So as it turned out, my lead professor was probably antithetical to military history, um, now that I look back on it. But this was right after Namibia had successfully won its War of Independence. And I wanted to write a history of the War of Independence in Namibia. And I had the same reaction from my, my professor. is like, yeah, it's not really that interesting enough. And it's like, nobody had ever done it before. Just like nobody had ever studied mountain quail. And, and I got all bent out of shape when he said no. I, to the point where I just cut and ran. I got my terminal master's and, and stopped my academic career and became a newspaper reporter at the time. But, yeah, I, I know how that feels. You know, when you when you play with the big, big dogs like at Berkeley, you better be able to – Bark and bite, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, you know, it's funny you're describing that that flush. And my first thought that went into my head was, I wonder what they were talking about. You know, like I wonder what a mountain quail has to say to a valley quail and vice versa. Because you know they were standing right next to each other, like looking at each other, like, oh man, it's the it's the hairless monkeys with their dog friends again, and like <laughs> like we better we better get out, you know. Yeah, and and you know that they are really quite different, but yet. I, I've I've seen them uh, numerous times associating together loosely and sometimes together, and of course there are even hybrids between California quail and mountain quail. Hmm. Uh, so th- there have been several that have been found in, in the you know in the wild. <clears throat> so even though they're really quite uh, distantly related, there is something about the what we call isolating mechanisms, you know, the things that prevent them from breeding that um, may be tied up in quail with uh, the habitat. So they're so in tune to their own habitats, so they're very infrequently together, but sometimes they are. And in this place that they are is in the central coastal California. Hmm. Other, most of the time, they're, they're in the breeding season. They're not, they're not in close proximity because like in the Sierra Nevada, the, the mountain quail are, are, are quite high during the breeding season and and the uh, cow quail or, or valley quail are in the mid-elevation to low ele- lower elevations. And, and so this and – if, and if you see the hybrids in, say, gamble quail and scale quail, they're all in areas where there's been uh, disruption of the habitat, the grassland in, in the – see, the, the, the gamble quail usually takes the, the upland, drier 
brushier places in the in the in the scale quill is is more out in the the grass grassland areas with with scattered shrubs but when you have agriculture going going in there and disrupting and putting intermixing these habitats then these two species come together and that's where you find your hybrids yeah you find the same thing with chickens in the in the great plains you know the the hybrid sharp-tailed grouse and prairie chicken that right. exact same phenomenon occurs with them right and and of course there you have the differences where the uh, where the uh, sharp-tailed grouse is more of a brush species and and uh, the prairie chicken is more of a grassland species yeah. and when they disrupt it with with um, with um, agriculture you you often see in, sometimes in the, I've, I've killed uh, sharp tails in, in uh, uh, greater prairie chickens right in this right out of the same covey I haven't done it in the same covey, but I have had uh, I've had them within 100 feet of each other in two yeah. different groups. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. So we've been going a fair bit, and I actually want to see if I can, because you've done a bunch of studies about ruffed grouse too, right? Right. I think I might, if it's okay with you, uh, call you back and have you on a show to talk about ruffed grouse, because I haven't done that show yet, and I've seen your your research on it. It's pretty fascinating, and and I mean, literally, we could go on for hours and hours and hours uh, because you have such a deep well of really cool information about the birds that we chase that um, if you're willing, you know, I mean, I'd love to have you on for the the grouse show. Yeah, I'd love to be on. Anytime I can talk to hunters or share what little information I have, I'm really happy to do it. because I'm reasonably certain you have forgotten more about these birds than I'll ever know. (laughs) I doubt that, but. You probably you're probably a better hunter than me for sure. I I know you're you're a better cook. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> that I'll take. That I'll take. Definitely a better cook. Um, well, if somebody wanted to get in touch with you to I don't know to find your research or talk birds or whatever, um, where would somebody look? Well, if if you Google my name, just put R R period J period uh, Gutierrez G U T I E R R E Z. And just Google that. You'll come up with my website. Although I'm not sure that website's working anymore because I haven't been active on it. But nevertheless, um, there will be a Google profile for me, a Google gotcha. Scholar profile. Oh, so yeah, that's go, right. That's right. That's right. Make yeah, sure you you're going Google Scholar out there. Yeah, like regular to, Google has it, but Google Scholar is pretty cool. Yeah, you go to Google Scholar. Uh, so type in Google Scholar and you get to that and just put RJ Gutierrez in that and that'll immediately come up to me. And then you'll 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 go on there. And there, there I think there's two other RJ uh, Gutierrez's. One of them is Rodrigo and somebody somebody else. And when you, but you'll you'll see uh, that little icon up there with with me standing there with a with a, the red Minnesota shirt on with a spotted owl sitting on a branch behind me Uh, (laughs) you'll you'll see that and then just click on my name and and then it'll come up with all the papers that i've published and and you can organize this the the way it comes out is it lists them by date or by the number of times it's been cited so and and so you can change that back and forth so and then you can you can scroll down and look at all these things and find out you know the the things that I that I've been uh, uh, working on. Well, cool. I will put that in the show notes so that people will be able to find it real easy. 
And uh, man, Rocky, I mean, it's been it's been great. And I'm definitely looking forward to have you just to geek out on grouse because uh, it is we're in high rough grouse season in the upper in the upper Midwest right now. And, and uh, it'd be good to, to talk about that while people are still chasing that bird. But for now, I'm going to let you go. And I, I once again, really, really, really thank you for coming on the show. Well, thank you very much, Hank. I really appreciate it. And uh, I actually uh, really appreciate the all the effort that you've gone through to uh, make uh, these recipes available and to publish those books so uh, we can get a, a chance to to try different things with the with the wonderful things we get to get to hunt and eat. I know it's been uh, the fish and seafood is going to be the next book that comes out in the spring. All right. Well, take it easy, and I will talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you very much, Hank. Bye-bye. Well, that's it for this episode of the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast. I am your host, Hank Shaw, and thank you so much for listening. You can follow me on social media. On Instagram, I am Hunt, Gather, Cook. I run a Facebook group called Hunt, Gather, Cook. It is a private group on Facebook. You have to answer some questions in order to get in. Just say that you listen to the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast, and I will let you in. And as always, the core of what I do is my website, Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook. It is honest-food.net, or you can find it through huntgathercook.com. You will find literally hundreds of recipes for everything from upland birds to big game to fish, seafood, wild edible plants, and mushrooms. Quick request, one of the ways I keep myself as an independent voice is I limit the number of sponsors I have on this podcast to only two. That provides minimal commercial interruption on every show. But what I do ask and hope that you would do is consider making a contribution to the podcast. You can do that through the podcast page on the website. And everything from a $6 contribution gets you a bumper sticker all the way up to signed cookbooks and even more than that, if you so choose. Every little contribution helps. I really appreciate it. And it helps keep me as an independent voice and it keeps commercials to a bare minimum. Thanks a lot for considering it. I am your host, Hank Shaw, and I will talk to you very soon. Take it easy, shoot straight, eat well, and have a good time out there.